0: The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy three one says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights
1: with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Praise the Lord, everybody. Ron Gary back again talking about the book of Revelation. Last week we finished part three on the church at Ephesus, the first. Of the seven churches which Jesus spoke to. And I know people talk about the church at Ephesus. They say that was the church that left its first love. That's true. But it was also the church that was praised immensely by the Lord Jesus Christ for their endurance, for their strength, for their patience, for searching out evil, for not putting up with false doctrines in their church. They did great. They were a great church. They were the missionary-minded church. The first church started over in western asia and yet god used them to start the other seven churches the next church that's up the road is the church at smyrna now if you open up your bible and it's got headings on the different little paragraphs like mine does it will probably say smyrna the persecuted church and that was true and yet when you get through with smyrna you are going to change the name of that cuz there is some awesome stuff about the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, there's only four verses that are dedicated to Jesus talking to the church at Smyrna. So let me read them quickly. There's not a lot there, but there's some rich truths inside. And unto the angel of the church, the, I'm sorry, this is Revelation 2, chapter 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works, and thy tribulation, and thy poverty. But thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, ouch, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. If Ephesus was called the light of Asia, then Smyrna was called the crown of Asia. Both were beautiful cities. Ephesus was a port city. Smyrna had beaches and just gorgeous, gorgeous, great cities. Smyrna's beauty made it the loveliest of all the cities in Asia. It had many names. It was called the Ornament of Asia. It was called the Flower of Asia, as well as Asia's Crown. And the way its hills and roads were situated, it literally looked like a crown when approached from the water in the West. Uh, William Barclay, one of my favorite commentators, he's got a paragraph or two. I'd like to read to you on his comments on Smyrna. Smyrna was magnificently situated. It stood at the end of the road, which crossed Lydia and Phrygia, and traveled out to the far east, and it commanded the trade of the rich Hermes Valley. Inevitably, it was a great trading city. The city itself stood at the end of a long arm of the sea, which ended in a small, landlocked harbor in the heart of the city. It was the safest of all the harbors, and the most convenient, and it had the added advantage that in time of war, it could be easily closed by a chain across its mouth. It was fitting that on the coins of Smyrna there should be an inscription of a merchant ship ready for sea. The setting of the city was equally beautiful. It began at the harbor, it traversed the narrow foothills, and then behind the city there rose the Pagos, or the Pagos, a hill which was covered with temples and noble buildings, which were spoken of as the crown of Smyrna. A modern traveler described it as a queenly city crowned with towers. Aristides likened Smyrna to a great statue with the feet in the sea, the middle parts of the statue in the plain and in the foothills, and then the head crowned with great buildings and towers and temples on the pagos behind. He called it a flower of beauty such as earth and sun had never showed to mankind. Now back to me. The beauty of Smyrna was contrasted by the great evil that dwelt there. So it may have had a great five cents appeal. It may have been prosperous. It may have been rich. It may have been culturally and aesthetically pleasing, but it was a deep, dark pit of evil. As with all pagan cultures, demon worship was dominant. The primary focus of their pagan worship was Rome. They were the first city in the entire world to erect a temple to the goddess Roma. They led the entire region in the worship of Rome. Now, don't forget, there were two competing demon entities at this point. You had the Greeks and their gods, their false gods, Zeus and Asclepius and Diana and Apollyon, all of those. And then you had Rome. And Rome, during this time, don't forget, it was the Romans that the Jews were answerable to because Rome had a great influence in uh, these cities where the gospel was being preached. And so Rome was at its height here in its ascension as far as impact over the cities and the religion. It was actually a religion. It was the worship of Rome. Domitian, he was the emperor during the time that John wrote this, 94 AD, 95 AD, during the writing of the book of Revelation and the Seven Letters to the Churches. Uh, Domitian was the emperor, and he was actually the first Roman emperor to declare himself as God. He took on the deity of God. And so we see this now, that this was in competition with the pagans and their worship of the Greek gods. But don't forget, they got along because unlike Christianity, which said their God, Jesus, is the only way to heaven, they found room for everybody. If you had just gotten by and said Jesus is just another God, there would have been no problem. But no, they said Jesus is the only way. And that's where the conflict came from. That's where the persecution was born. The fact that the church was putting down the other gods as not gods and proclaiming Jesus as the only true God. And that actually is the way to eternal life. John seventeen three. And this is life eternal, that you may know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. But the worship of Rome was waning pretty much at this time. It had its height maybe 30, 40 years ago, and now the other pagan gods were being worshipped as well, and temples were being erected to them. They included Zeus and Cybele, Apollo, Aphrodite, Asclepius, This city was rich. It was rich in trade. It was rich in the trade guilds or better yet, the trade unions. These unions were places where great pagan rituals, sexual orgies and idol worship occurred. In order to hold a job just like at Ephesus in such a union, one had to worship the God of that union. So verse 8, we already saw how Jesus introduced himself and this is very important in verse 80, he says, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things say at the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Basically, he revealed himself to the church at Smyrna as the resurrection. He gave them the revelation that he was the resurrection. And that's important because you're going to read on and you're going to see the danger that the church in Smyrna lived under in their persecution by the Jews. Verse 8, and unto the church of Smyrna write, these things say at the first and the last which was dead and which was alive. It's so very important that we understand the way in which Jesus introduces himself to each separate church. He gives them what they are going to need as he reads on in the letters. In Ephesus, Jesus revealed himself as having a strong, masterful grip on the pastors and the church. He revealed himself as intimately involved with everything about them, after all, it's his church. The Ephesians' problem was they had left their first love. they had forgotten about Jesus, they drifted and roamed from their place of safety and intimacy with Christ, but not Jesus, like a parent in a park with a kid. You got the hand of the kid in there. The kid is struggling to let go, he drifts away and he loses his grip, and that's gone and And the kid winds up lost, just like the church over at Ephesus and yet. In Ephesus, Jesus revealed, you may be letting go of me, but I'm not letting go of you. And now here we see in the church at Smyrna, Jesus says, meet the resurrection. Hallelujah. I love that. He shows up Sunday morning and he shows up not as a priest. He doesn't even show up as a king. He doesn't show up as a great preacher or a deliverer. He shows up as the resurrection. It doesn't get any better than that. It is so very important. He says, "Meet the resurrection. I am the beginning, I am the end, and I'm everything that's in between." When he says he was dead, the phrase "theology" in the Greek implies I was temporarily dead. I became dead, I was alive, and I became dead, and then I became alive again. This is the revelation of Jesus Smyrna's head, and they were going to need this. Why? Verse 9. "I know thy works, and I know thy tribulation, and I know thy poverty." But thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and they are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus told Ephesus he knew their works, their patience, endurance. Here he knows the works also at the church at Smyrna, but it's different. He knows their tribulation and their poverty. The dominant theme of the church at Ephesus was their works. And on the negative side, the fact that they forgot about Jesus. The dominant theme of the church at Smyrna is their persecution. Jesus says he knows. He has been an eyewitness to what's going on in this church also. Remember Peripathos. He performs an outward observation and an inward examination of everything that happens at every church at every time in every service. Once again, the Greek word for works is erga; It means motion or activity. We get our English word, what? Energy from the word erga. Tribulation. I know that Tribulation. In the Greek, the word is thalispos, and basically it was originally used in the Greek to denote torture. Jesus says, I know the torture that you're undergoing. Here, though, it's best translated as something that is a crushing burden. Jesus used this word to give a visual picture to the saints here of the mounting pressure that they were going to be facing by the persecution from the Jews. The Christians in Smyrna, they were hated so much especially by the Jews, because most of the church converts came from Jewish believers. It was the Jews who initiated or instigated this persecution. It was a common theme in the book of Acts, Jews stirring up hatred against the church by the pagan population. Jesus says, I not only know your tribulation, but I also know your poverty. In the Greek, there are two words that are used to describe the word poverty. One is penea, and the other is tokos. Penia, P-E-N-I-A. I wonder if we get penny out of that. I don't know. It doesn't reference that. I didn't check it. But our penny, it's the smallest amount of currency in our society. And don't forget, Jesus is talking about the poverty of the church at Smyrna. Penea is used to picture a person from the lower class, perhaps even a slave who is living at the bottom of the economic barrel. They perform manual labor to earn a living, only earning a very meager income. This person has no investment capabilities. They're never going to own anything, nor do they own land. This is not the word to describe the state of the church at Smyrna. It was actually worse than that. Potokos is the word that's used here to represent the abject poverty of these saints. It is total impoverishment, an appalling, horrifying level of poverty in which a person is deprived of the very basic essentials of life for day-to-day living. It pictures a homeless person who has to scrounge around to find enough food to eat to keep them alive. This word describes someone who is financially ruined, poverty-stricken, financially down and out with no hope of recovery. Most people who came to Christ in the first century, they were lower-class citizens, sometimes slaves. But as Paul said, not many rich came to the kingdom of Christ. And we see this confirmed in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? And so we see the church at Smyrna was desperate. Many thought that the abject poverty of the Smyrna Christians was the tribulation that Jesus was talking about. Remember that in verse 8, I know thy works, and I know thy tribulation and thy poverty. Many thought that that abject poverty was the particular tribulation that Jesus was describing. And in a part, in a sense, it was. It was a great disadvantage to the church to be so poverty stricken. Why were they so poor? The pagan society believed that financial blessings was a sure sign the pagan gods were pleased with you. Conversely, if you were poor, it was a sign they were displeased with you and you were then treated as a societal outcast, almost like a leper. The economic structure in Smyrna or the commerce in Smyrna was connected to their trading with other cities and other regions. Trade guilds were formed to carry out this business. Most belonged to such a guild. If you were going to have a job, you were a member of a guild, or in today's vernacular, a trade union. Like today, they were very, very powerful. They provided most of the jobs in Smyrna. Trade guilds were notorious for their involvement in idol worship. Each trade guild had their own idol whom they worshipped to, they did obeisance to, they uh, performed all sorts of sexual, deviant sexual acts as they worshipped them in the manner of a pagan society. But they devolved these meetings, these uh, meetings, whether it was once a month. However, if you had a job, you belonged to the guild, you had to go to these meetings. But they often devolved into drunken orgies and pagan worship of a very specific god who was a deity over that particular guild. You were required to participate in such worship and behavior and to perform sacrifice to these gods. By refusing to do this, and by refusing to attend these meetings, by refusing to deny Christ at these meetings, the Christians' membership to such guilds was canceled. And once you got kicked out of a guild, you weren't getting a job anywhere else. I mean, that was it. They were outed. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. And eventually they were barred from any future employment. This is what the saints at Smyrna were facing. But Jesus says, thou art rich. You got to love that. We could speak for weeks about this. The American church leaders have totally distorted the message of God's provision. Through our itching ears and our greed, we have fallen prey to this satanic assault on the truth. We've left off humility, we've left off sacrifice, we've left off suffering in the pursuit of getting rich in the five cents realm. The word for rich here is plosius. Remember, Jesus says, You are rich. Just like they were at the bottom of the barrel in their abject poverty, here, they are plosius. The word describes extreme wealth. It's not just someone who's just wealthy, but super wealthy. They are filthy rich in the realm of the spirit. That is so awesome. It is direct opposite to what we've been teaching today. Today we are dry and poverty stricken in the realm of the spirit in America, and yet we've got great riches. We've got two homes, four TVs, three cars, 12 pairs of sneakers. We go spend hundreds of dollars at the hairdressers. We eat whatever we want, whenever we want, as much as we want we take pills to go ahead and try to correct the carnal appetites that we indulge in and we live a life full of stress there is no spiritual richness in america in the church very minor very minor there's pockets of it but at the end of the day even though the church at smyrna was said to be poor and yet jesus said they're rich i think it would be backwards we'd be like laodicea where we are rich carnally but we are poor spiritually It is the direct opposite of the abject poverty that the saints were facing in Smyrna. Jesus didn't look at their material poverty and judge them. He looked at their spiritual riches and he judged them in that. And he came to the conclusion, you are fabulously wealthy. You are filthy rich indeed. When Jesus told them they were rich, it was affirmation that they were on the right track. Picture Jesus showing up in your church Sunday. What would he say in your pulpit? What would he say to your church today? What would he say? Let's look at this. They were rich in three things. They were rich in the word. Colossians three sixteen, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. They were rich in works. 1 Timothy six eighteen, That they be rich in good works. And the third, they were rich in faith. James 2, 5. God has not chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. Today's church in America has totally perverted the truth of being rich. Proverbs 22, one: a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. We need to preach that in church. Proverbs 23.4, labor, God, in the Hebrew, to gasp, to faint, to exhaust yourself. Labor not to be rich. That means you don't want to be rich. You want to avoid it at all costs. Labor not to be rich. Cease from your own wisdom. Proverbs twenty eight twenty: a faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. And where's the one about the snare? It says, he that hasteth to be rich gets a snare. Proverbs twenty eight twenty two: he that hasteth to be rich has an evil eye and considers not that poverty shall come upon him. Garrett writes it this way, well, not condemning possessions in themselves. Proverbs always rejected greed. It contrasts financial prudence, diligence and generosity with the desire for quick and easy money. Bridges writes it like this, even if no criminal means are resorted to, yet the immoderate desire, the perseverance in every track of mammon, the laboring night and day for the grand object and the delight and confidence in the acquisitions it provides all prove the idolatrous heart and they will not go unpunished. Try as I might, I really can't find any scripture where Jesus was commending people who were materialistically well off. Matter of truth, he constantly warned them and challenged them, rather holding up the poor as better examples of faith. Amen. We are truly upside down in America. Paul and James did the same thing. Blasphemy of the Jew. They said they were Jews, but were they really Jews? The Jews, remember? He says, they say they are Jews, but they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy means the vilification, to call good evil and evil good. There were five things that the Jews at Smyrna accused the Christians of. Acts fourteen 19, I'm going to read them. They're, they're brief. And there came there certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. These Jews were following the Christians around. As Paul is preaching and evangelizing city after city, the Jews are going with him. And they're persecuting the Jews that are getting saved. And they're saying there came there Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people. And having stoned Paul, they drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. So we see they're following the ministry of Paul around, persecuting Paul, criticizing the Jews, setting up persecution for them. They said they were synagogue of the Jews, but they're not. By the way, when you criticize the Jewish Christian, Synagogue or the Jewish temple. Remember Jesus. Why did they find him guilty? Because they said he said that he was talking about his body that you would crucify it. I'd raise it back in three days. They thought he was talking about their temple. You could not talk about the Jewish temple. That was a holy thing. If you talked about the synagogue or the temple, man, you were you were you were the antichrist, and they were going to kill you for it. And that's eventually what they did with Jesus, even though they misunderstood him. So the Jews were saying that the new Christian Jews that they were cannibals. Why? Right. They were saying that they were cannibals, and they referred to the Lord's Supper about this. They said that they were actually eating flesh and drinking blood, talking about the communion service. They also said that these Christians were sexual perverts. Where'd that come from? They were greeting one another with a holy kiss. They had love feasts. They were talking about orgies. So they were saying that their so-called holiness that they're talking about was false. Number three, they were political rebels. They would not say that Caesar was God. Christians would not say that. They knew they were required to. And they would not say that Caesar was God. And they talked about another king and another kingdom. They refused to get permission to hold their meetings where they worshipped this king of the other kingdom. So we see that they said that they were cannibals. They said they were sexual perverts. They were political rebels. And then they said they must be atheists because they got rid of all of their idols Thou shalt have no idols, the book of Deuteronomy talks about. No graven images. Well, Christians got rid of them. And so they had no idols, no statues like the pagans did. And therefore, they must be atheists. And finally, the Jews, they were jealous of the crowds and the followers that Christianity drew. And so what did they do? They accused them of breaking up families. Since when did the world really care about families? Paul summed all this up in Acts 13.45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes they were filled with envy and they spoke against those things which were spoken of by Paul contradicting and blaspheming him. So he goes back Jesus for say they are Jews but are not. The difference between a true Jew and a false Jew is Romans 2:28 and 29. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward of the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but whose praise is of God. And so we see that this persecution from the Jews, they weren't Jews. Jesus wouldn't call them Jews. He says you're false. Uh, he says you belong to the synagogue of Satan. That is the ultimate insult to a Jew. That is a huge slap in the face because you could not criticize the temple. You could not criticize their synagogues. If you criticize their synagogues, if you criticize their temple, you are the devil himself. And so Jesus is saying, Church of Smyrna, don't worry about it. They're not Jews. Don't worry about them. Matter of fact, in the book of Laodicea, he says, I'm going to have these guys bow down to you. So don't worry about it. I'm going to have to stop here. We're out of time again, but I want to know we love you. I pray that you're understanding this. I pray that you're getting it. I know you haven't heard this before. Take time, review the uh, audio tapes, and we'll see you next week. In Jesus' name.